<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 366 with my guest, Jen Elmquist. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Uh, everybody's got a great idea out there, but how are you going to turn your idea into a unique website? Well, with Squarespace, you can showcase your work, your blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from the look and feel to settings and products using really cool templates uh, by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Super intuitive. I built my own Squarespace website in about two hours, put all my dog pictures and my music snippets up there, and uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking, uh, the show is half interview, half uh, reading confessions uh, submitted anonymously by listeners via our survey on the website. Or surveys, there's about a dozen of them. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that that doesn't suck. And our website is mentalpod.com. Um, I had a whole bunch of uh, surveys that I was going to read tonight. Um, every every Thursday night, I'm I'm recording it right now at uh, 8:40. Uh, Pacific time on Thursday. Um, and then I post it usually a little after midnight Pacific time, um, which would be very early Friday morning. Um, and I've been doing that for six years and I always enjoy my little routine because I go to one of my support groups. It's a, it's a, uh, men's, uh, meeting and, uh, it starts at seven 30. It's over at nine o'clock. And it's really the place where, like, I have learned to be a man, where I've learned to stay sober, um, 
my best friends in the world are people that I met there uh, who I know can help me when I need help. Um, well, tonight, um, I just came from the meeting. Uh, it was cut short. Um, I don't even know how to, uh, how to explain, uh, what happened because I want to do it in a way that is, um, I don't want to leave anything out. I don't want to be too dramatic. Um, and I don't want to make it about me. Um, that third one is probably the hardest. <laughs> it's about 20 minutes into the meeting, and this was what? Uh, this was at about 7.40, so about an hour ago. Uh, a guy is sharing. He's telling his story. Um, and this where this meeting is it's in a little strip mall and there's a 7-eleven there and you know like a hair salon and a couple little restaurants tiny little parking lot and um and all of a sudden we hear from the parking lot pop 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 like six shots and the first one we thought you know might have been a car backfiring but um the the men in this meeting, um, a lot of them have been through shit in their lives on both sides of crimes being committed. And, um, you know, thankfully, um, uh, turned their lives around and are now sober and upstanding citizens. And, uh, I would imagine for the most part, you never know what everybody's life is uh, once they leave a meeting. But, um, these guys immediately knew that that was a gun being fired 50 feet away from from where we are. And about four or five seconds after we hear these shots, a guy comes barreling into our meeting, screaming in pain. And this is going to get graphic. Blood spraying from his leg. And... We didn't know if the shooter was coming after this guy. Um, we didn't know exactly what was going on. Um, but, you know, there's some, there's some just take charge alpha motherfuckers in that meeting and some guys that I just really look up to. And they immediately surrounded this guy and started taking care of him, took their belts off, made tourniquets, um, one guy um, who has been a guest on this podcast, and I, I won't mention his name because I don't know if he wants it it known, but he immediately put his fingers in this guy's wound. This guy had been shot in the back and had an exit wound in his gut, and he'd been shot apparently in the femoral artery of his leg, and that's what was causing all the blood. And, uh, and this guy was bleeding out. This guy, um, so, you know, uh, guys were immediately calling the police and an ambulance. And, um, that's funny because all the guys that were like the criminals in their lives, those were the guys that were right there that knew what to do 
guys who I am sure in their lives have shot somebody. And they knew all the questions to ask this guy. They knew how to talk to him, find out what drugs he was on, because he, it was clear that there, the, this guy was also not in his right mind, aside from having just been shot. And a lot of transient people kind of hang out in that that parking lot. Um, and I... I felt like I was floating. Like I, you know, I saw something really fucked up about two years ago. Um, I saw a guy die, uh, suicide by cop, um, not too far from there. Um, come to beautiful Los Angeles. Um, and it was the same kind of feeling where I didn't feel sadness. I felt some fear, but more than anything, I just felt like I was in kind of a low adrenalized, numb fog, just really spaced out. And I didn't want to see the guy's face because if he died, I didn't want to picture his face. There were there were guys surrounding him, um, you know, putting pressure on his wounds and, and talking to him. And, um, and it took the ambulance for fucking ever to get there. And, um, and the guys around him just kept saying, you know, where is the fucking ambulance? This guy's bleeding out. He's not going to make it. He's not going to make it. And, uh, the cops show up first because apparently they have to make sure that it's safe for an ambulance, uh, to come in there because when shots are fired, they don't know what the situation is, so they come in um, and uh, start asking questions. Very nice. Two women um, uh, took control of the situation. Um, and, uh, and then about five minutes later, the ambulance came, and by that point, they had had everybody who wasn't physically helping the guy move out into the parking lot. And as we walk... We have to walk past where this guy is laying to get out of this building and to the parking lot. And it was just, it was like the the 7-Eleven where he got shot was probably about 25 yards away. And it was as if somebody had taken a hose that turned it on about halfway, put their thumb over it. And just sprayed blood from the from the every inch from the moment the the place where he was shot, which is the door is just outside this seven eleven to right where right where he was laying and um I, they were the police were talking to an eyewitness, and apparently what happened was um I think I told you that this guy had been up on meth for, for two days. That's one of the things that we got out of him is he slowly kind of, I believe he lost con- consciousness. He just st- st- stopped talking less and less. And um, I don't know what I just said. Stops talking um, bit by bit. He's, he started talking less and less. Um, and uh, this woman... Um, 
who was eating at a restaurant and I guess was just about to get into her car, said that a guy came out of the 7-Eleven. He exchanged words with this guy who I don't know if the guy was panhandling or the guy that got shot, if he was panhandling or if he was, you know, on that multiple day meth bender hallucination. Um, but apparently he said something to piss this guy off. And this guy just pulled a revolver out of his jacket and just started firing at this, at this guy. And, um, and then took off. And the guy that shot him, he will absolutely be caught. He was just in the 7-Eleven moments before that. Um, what, what, you know, the dichotomy between this meeting, which is like the, I hate to use this word, but one of the most sacred spots in my life. It's where I found love, where I found safety, where I found vulnerability, where I grew up. I've cried and I've laughed harder in that room in the last 14 years than any other place in my life. And then this horror just right alongside of it. And, you know, we talk about ego a lot in trying to stay sober. And what a barnacle it is and how it will attach itself to anything and how it thrives on needing to make us better than or less than somebody else and how it can't conceive of the idea of being one of many, being being a good thing. And I was just hit by the, the irony that this shooter's ego was so fucking fragile that he had to throw his life away because he thought somebody he didn't even know had insulted him. Now, in that moment, who knows, maybe that kid, but something snapped in him. Maybe it had something to do with more than that. I'm sure at the at that time, he probably wasn't thinking, my face is going to be easy to find because I was just in a 7-Eleven. But as I, as I drove home, um, because the police wanted everybody to leave unless they, you know, saw the, the incident um, as opposed to just the, the aftermath. Um, and thankfully, when the, when the ambulance wheeled him out, they had a sheet on him, but it wasn't covering his face. So I don't know if he died. Um, I have the feeling probably not because, um, it, it, it didn't go through his chest. And from what I understand, if you can be supplied with blood, when you've been wounded in an extremity or basically anything other than a vital organ, um, your chances of surviving are pretty good. So that's, <laughs> that's a plus. 
How do, how do I even talk about this? How do I... But on the drive home, I just felt like I was floating through space. Like, I didn't have the radio on. I, I didn't... And I, the only thing I was really thinking of was about that, the shooter, that guy, my friends, and what the fuck am I going to say on the podcast? Because I can't, I like to release it at the same time every week, and I don't want to delay it. I have an obligation to sponsors, um, and I knew that I would talk about this because I talk about almost everything in my life with you, the listener. Um, and I don't know if there's a point to any of this. Um, you know, I guess that the, as, I, as I was pulling into my driveway, I was thinking, how in God name, God's name do combat veterans, how, how are you able to experience this? Like, I, I, I cannot wrap my head around what it would be like to have this feeling all the time. Ambulance drivers, police, firemen, <clears throat> people who operate suicide hotlines. I'm sure I'm, there's a thousand other things I'm thinking of where people, nurses, doctors, ice cream truck drivers. That last one might have not fit in with the rest of them. You never know. There are there's some pretty gangster ice cream trucks out there. That's the other thing I do is I immediately have to start suppressing my need to want to make jokes about it. And uh I walked up to one of my one of my friends as we were standing out in the parking lot and the police were interviewing people that had seen stuff and uh and my friend and i just kind of caught each other's eyes and you know how you doing you know i'm all right how are you doing and uh and i said to him you know when i heard the gunshots my first thought was i gotta get to you and use you as a shield And and we both kind of laughed, but I I'm so uncomfortable in that in that moment. Um, I hate those moments where you realize, and and I hate to say this for, for an audience full of people that battle depression. But I hate those moments when I'm confronted with how much fucking horror there is in the world. 99.9% um, .9 of the time, I've carved out, carved out a life where 
I don't have to deal with any of it, but uh, it's, I guess all we can do is just try to be the best, oh, shut up, Paul, be the best version of us that, that we can be, and uh, I just feel like I'm rambling now, but I had I had to get this um I had to get this off my my chest and I wanted I wanted to talk about this because um this podcast for me is so helpful for me personally to process shit that I go through in my life. Because one of my biggest fears in in my life is that I'm forgettable, that there's nothing special about me, and that I'm going to be left behind, that everybody else is 50 steps ahead of me and doing it right, and I've blown it. And I'm three steps behind the universe. And I feel seen when I open up in my support groups and I open up on the podcast. The podcast is really kind of like a support group for me. I know you fuckers think I do it for you. Yeah, yeah, and there's part of me that does do it for you. But I also, I need this. I'm already feeling a little better. But fuck, man, <laughs> Let's, how the hell are we going to segue into BetterHelp.com? Uh, there's a thousand inappropriate ways we could segue. Uh, boy, if that one guy had sought therapy earlier, he wouldn't be going to jail for the rest of his life if he had only went to betterhelp.com slash mental. I don't know how to do this. I do not know how to navigate this. Um, I'm a, a huge fan of betterhelp.com. Uh, it's online counseling. I love my therapist. And holy fuck, are Donna and I going to have a lot of stuff to talk about on Monday. Um, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, complete a questionnaire. You'll get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor, and then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. You need to be over 18. Um, yeah, so, uh, there's not going to be any surveys. Um, there, I just, I don't know. It just, I don't have to explain myself. Um, this is an interview with uh, therapist Jen Elmquist uh, about uh, hurdles that couples face, uh, mistakes they make in trying to uh, trying to. Uh, oh, I don't know. I'm running out. Of, I'm in a fucking fog. Uh, but it's a great interview. She was a blast to talk to, and. Uh, and honestly, it's a nice break from this heaviness because there's a decent amount of humor throughout it. And um, yeah, enjoy it. And um, I'll talk to you guys next week.
there's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread. Silent, invisible, just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization, depersonalization. A suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> 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 I am here with Jen Elmquist, who is a therapist. Uh, she's based out of Minneapolis, and she has a book uh, that she wrote about a couple's issues called Relationship Reset. And so uh, I thought, let's uh, have her come on. Let's take some questions from the uh, the listeners and the followers on social media and uh, ask her some questions about couple struggles. Um first one that somebody asks is what should couple this is such a good one what should couples do when one of them isn't ready to talk mm-hmm. I mean obviously if they there was something specific that they didn't want to talk about it would probably be easier to, to answer but let's just say mm-hmm. it, whatever it is well and it's not unusual yeah right that couples get to a place where one is feeling really dissatisfied they want to do something different they want the relationship to change and their partner just isn't ready to do that yet for whatever reason. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that it's always okay for one individual to start to pursue change first and then do what they can to be the best partner in the relationship and see how that starts to affect the relationship. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, but then wouldn't you also say at a certain point, that other person has to shit or get off the pot. I well, if things don't change, yeah, I think absolutely. There's a point where you look at each other as a couple and you say, mm-hmm. "We're either we're either going to stay stuck or status quo," mm-hmm. and we're considering that acceptable living. Mm-hmm. Or if it's not, we got two choices: we either make this better or we're done. Yeah. You know, and I think it, you definitely reach that place where if somebody's terribly resistant to moving forward and making a change. There is nothing. I always say it's like when a toddler falls down in the middle of Target, <laughs> there's not a lot you can do to pick them up. Right. You know, you got to pick them up, throw them over your shoulder and carry them out of the store. Right. When they have a meltdown, they have a meltdown. But adults do that. And we often do it by shutting ourselves down and not being willing to talk mm-hmm. or move forward in a relationship. And, you know, you can't pick an adult up and throw them over your shoulder and carry them out of the store. Usually yeah. what you have to do is walk away and say, I... I can't do this for you. I'd like to do it with you. But if you're not going to move with me in that direction, then I need to move. That's that's uh, so, so well put. Mm-hmm. Um, so discuss the issue, though, of how do you know when there is still something that you are doing that is aid aiding the other person and shutting down um, that you either aren't aware of or don't want to give weight to? Is that something um, 
that those two people can work out between themselves? Do you, is it necessary to have joint counseling? Uh, to, tell me the options of, yeah. of that because it's, it's so rare that somebody who's really unhealthy picks somebody who's healthy or vice versa. It's very true. I, I've always said water finds its level. Yeah. And couples definitely experience that, you know, where somebody is emotionally, you usually find someone that matches. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that could be someone that's really shut down and somebody else that really likes to rage. Right. You know, it's just that's not necessarily an either. Neither of those are healthy ways to be communicating emotionally, but you're meeting each other in those places. So you know, the question I hear you asking is if what my behavior is causing is you as my partner to shut down. How do I first assess myself and see Mm -hmm. if I can change my behavior in order to get you to join me? Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of learning those skills of what it is to be a good partner. And one of the keys to being good, I would say great in relationships is self-regulation. So, you know, that's the ability to be able to assess your own emotional state, to be able to work with your thoughts and your emotions in order to change your experiences. It's also the ability then to be able to communicate to somebody, this is mine. I think this might be yours. You know, it, issue, issue, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I think this might be your issue. I think this might be my issue. I'm willing to own this. Could we talk about what I think is going on with you? But even in that exchange right there that I'm lightly role playing, right? Mm-hmm. It's that non-blaming language yeah. that says we're both we're both making this happen. You know, we're a system. We're both making this happen. And mm-hmm. so, if I can move a little bit, will you be willing to move a little bit? But I think first you have to be willing yes. to make the movement in yourself. Yeah. Um, and and then I think it also brings tools and insights to it that will aid. You. It's not like you're going and digging a ditch before the other person joins you. You're you're building your own thing, and so whether or not that person decides to build with you, you're still going to have this thing that you built that you can take to another relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I think across the board, our goal in life should be to be as great as we can be in order to make all of our relationships great. Uh, it sounds yes. really lofty, I but agree. that's I satisfaction, agree. right? Is yeah. when we're le- relating well with ourselves, others in the world around us, right. we have a better experience and that's good for everybody involved. Yeah. It, you know, in, in one of my support groups, there's a saying that be the person you want to meet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, so that idea of, yeah, of acting as if, you know, stepping yeah. into what you think is possible and then being that person. It makes a big difference. Talk about um, ultimatums. Um, You know, saying to the person, you know, here's here's what I need. Um, If this doesn't happen, um, I'm going to leave. What is reasonable and what is unreasonable? I I really struggle with the concept of an ultimatum in a relationship. Um, and I think the reason that I say that is because I think ultimatums are threats. And I don't know that th- threatening is ever a good way to leave anything. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so I think ultimately what it comes down to is if you get to a place where you're so stuck in your relationship, mm-hmm. I think what you're 
what you are saying to the partner in that moment or what feels like an ultimatum is we're so stuck. I have to move if you're not going to move with me. You know, so it's an offer. I'm offering you to move with me, but I can't offer that day after day after day and have you not want to come with me. Mm -hmm. It makes me sad. It's disappointing. I feel disillusioned and I don't want to stay in that place by myself any longer. If you'd like to come with me to a better place, will you please join me at this point? It's such good language. Because I was thinking of uh, just sitting on a big throne and looking down at your partner and saying, here's how it's going to be. Yeah. And saying it through a megaphone. So that's probably not the best uh, idea that I had. Well, and I think we want to because we feel so justified. You know, we feel so frustrated and so justified. And, and self-righteousness yeah, is such oh a high. Gosh. It's such a high. It is. It's addictive, man. I mean, look at social media. <laughs> look when somebody mentions something political. It's like everybody, their adrenaline just starts firing. It really does. And I, it, we, because in being right, we can be so much more powerful and we can subdue our fears and we can shove them all down and you know in in better than we can walk away and not have to carry with us any guilt or any shame about maybe i didn't make the right choice or maybe i didn't do everything that i thought i could have done you know it's really self-protective in so many ways uh the other thing uh, is if if you have done that work if you put the effort in to try to make a relationship work and it doesn't work out and you are the person that leaves, um, it's probably easier for that person to have peace of mind because you did what you had control over, which was to put as much effort into trying to make it work. I think we always ask that question when something ends. Uh, eventually, you know, maybe not right away if we're really hurt or really angry. But I think there's always a reckoning and an ending where we look back and say, did I show up as best as I could? Did I do everything that I could? And At the time. Uh, yeah. Because look, I'm sure you would look back and go, oh, I know this now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, did you do the footwork? That's the most important yep. thing. Did you give it a good effort? Did you give it a good effort? And don't say, did you do it perfectly? Because then you're oh, going to beat yourself up. There never is. You know, I had this aha at some point a few years back because we at least in my experience with myself and my own mm-hmm. relationship with myself, it's so easy to be so critical about past versions of myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, right? I look, makes your skin crawl. Oh, I look back and think, oh, why did you do that? Or why did you make that choice? And, and then I realized that whatever decision I made today, I actually felt really confident about the decision I made today because mm-hmm. I made it today with everything that I know and mm-hmm. in the best way possible. And whatever you were feeling. Right. So why can't I look at past versions of myself and give myself the same grace that in the day that I made that choice, I made it the best I could with all of the information I had at the time. And I felt as confident as I do making the decisions I do today. You know, I think we so often we can be very critical with ourselves and not give ourselves the same grace that we're willing to give other people. Even Absolutely. We're uniquely positioned to be our own best friends. And then we talk to ourselves like our our own worst enemies yeah the reason i think we do that is it's a way to fool ourselves into obsessing about ourselves Hmm. um to me grandiosity and self-loathing are different sides of the same coin Mm -hmm. they're both ways for us to stay stuck in in self Mm -hmm. and um 
is, do you think it's a way of avoiding considering the idea that it's not about us and maybe people aren't even considering or thinking about us, that that's even more terrifying than they hate us? Maybe it is. Yeah, it's almost easier to personalize and think someone is thinking about me and, and thinking about me poorly right. than to think I'm in, invisible. I'm not on the radar. Yeah, you yeah. don't see me, you don't hear me. I think oftentimes that we're probably more scared of that in yeah. life, right? That we're not seen and we're not heard. And a lot of times that's such a core piece in relationships. And childhood. Well... Yeah. yeah, there's think, a lot of parents that parent out of not wanting to be inconvenienced, mm-hmm. and so they shut their kids down rather than letting them really be present. Uh, the other thing I see a lot is parents that parent kids into trying to form them into not being something, rather than meeting the kid where they're at and embracing what is organic in that child, you mm-hmm. know, still giving them consequences and guiding them, etc. But mm-hmm. Um, the parents, I, I see so many backfired relationships where the parents have a lot of anxiety and fear about the world mm-hmm. and they pour that onto their child and mold that kid into something that is not the shape that they're supposed to be because the parent thought that that would be protecting and giving them a good chance to quote unquote succeed. Mm-hmm. But what they wind up doing is damaging that person's uh, sense of uh, autonomy, sense of uh, integrity, confidence in their decision making, mm-hmm. uh, sense of unconditional love, on and on and on. It's it's. Uh, do, do you see that a lot in your practice? Well, I. Or do you just do couples counseling? No, I work the f- the full spectrum of you know with children, families, couples, individuals. But there's an interesting connection between it, and I mm-hmm. think this is why couples are so fascinating to me because I think intervening in a couple system creates a health in the whole family system. Oh yeah, that affects children, and then children learn what's modeled to them, and so they take that into their intimate relationships. So let's see, it goes generation to generation. Mm-hmm. So if you can get to that first system and bring health to it, there's a trickle-down, yeah. trickle-down relationship health right there. But interesting to what you're saying, because I completely agree with you, and I of what happens when a ungrown-up grown-up mm-hmm tries to raise a child and we all in some are in some version of that right Right. we're all as as adults still growing up but when we have a fairly unformed identity ourselves, children become leverage for adult identities you know and so adults go to a little league game yeah yeah right how intense people can get into something that's supposed to be play Mm -hmm. um but we we then compensate and we compensate through our parenting and we can do that across a broad spectrum, you know, of being overly involved to completely passive, you know, Mm -hmm. there's that whole spectrum and that does influence the soul of another person. When we're trying to work out our soul work and our lack of assured identity by allowing another little person to try to fix that for us. You know, it's just the wrong way to go about it. It's a lot to put on that kid Mm because they don't know. They don't know what's normal or healthy. So they internalize all that. They They shut down or they Mm -hmm. act out, you know, whatever, whatever their, uh, 
their thing is. That's what I love, Paul, though, about what you're doing with your podcast, that idea of normalizing mental health. Because if we saw it as a part of our development, just like we see, you know, working out our body or we Mm -hmm. see eating well, if we saw our working with our identity and our mind and our thoughts as something that was just a normal part of our adult growing, we would prevent passing on some of those negative things to the children we're raising. So it's critical to break down that stigma. You're going to send ripples so it's your decision. Do you want to send positive or negative ripples from, exactly. your, from your lifetime? Exactly. And I think a lot of us send both. And hopefully it's you begin to sense, oh, I'm sending negative ripples. It's time for me to ask for help so mm-hmm. I can send positive ripples. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's been my my experience. I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, you um, you make a good point in the fact that you said earlier about not using the word perfect, you know, we're not going to be all positive ripples. And that's where I look and say, well, sometimes, you know, again, we got to be easy on ourselves. We're Mm going to send the negative ripples. Can we see that then as being the grist for the mill in our kids' lives for kind of them developing into who they need to be? Because that's not going to be perfect. Right. But shooting for that growth and development and moving towards positive is so important. Yeah. Even the Dalai Lama at some point has called somebody a cocksucker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Jen. <laughs> um, do you see a lot in couples counseling as the past of these partners, the childhood of these partners is revealed that they have each chosen the unavailable parent from their childhood <laughs> and are trying to do a redo on their childhood? <laughs> oh, is that man. common? Uh, well, yeah, the way you're putting it, I mean, yes, we could look at it and say we're all trying to work out something with our intimate partner. I think that it is, well, I've always said that we have our family of origin that we grow up in that defines our identity. We have the people we fall in love with that redefine our identity. And it's just an extension, really, of that same process of figuring out who am I? How do I fit in the world? Do I like this? Do I not like this? Do you, do I work with you? Do I not work with you? You know, life is all about contrast. Yeah. It's all about kind of working off of something and then seeing how does it reflect back to me? Do Mm -hmm. I want it? Do I not want it? Does it work? Does it not work? And when we get people up close and personal, sleeping naked with us and being in our lives 24 seven, gosh, what a mirror that is. Oh my God. There is no bigger mirror than uh, living with somebody or vacationing with somebody. (laughs) You want to see if a relationship is going to work, go on a 10-week vacation. That will tell you a lot. Before you pack up all your stuff and sign a lease. Yes. (laughs) Go. Just go someplace, uh, you know, uh, two hours away. Um, All right. let's Let's get to another question. Uh, how to move past arguments where each party cannot understand where the other is coming from, like a more enlightened, healthy version of agree to disagree. So a little couple's research that I think is re- relieving, and I write about this in the book. So it's relieving to know that all couples are going to have two to three chronic conflicts that are going to go the distance in their relationship. So if you look at that... Can you tell me m- what mine will be? <laughs> well, let me see your palm. <laughs> um, but 
I think what's important to know is you are going to bump up against value differences. And that may never go away in your relationship, but it actually doesn't mean something's critically wrong with your relationship. And I think that's the key point. I think oftentimes couples hit those places where they are having those arguments over and over again, those conflicts that don't go away. Money spending Mm -hmm. or who is acceptable as a friend or where are we going to eat tonight? Yeah. Stuff like that. I mean, yes, from the most mundane to really critical political beliefs or religious (laughs) or toilet paper, right? Um, But knowing that... It's okay for those to be present in your relationship as long as you can come to a respectful place of that agree to disagree. But I think that takes discovery and it takes time. And I think about this analogy of life is like walking around a mountain. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we, we walk and we bump up against something. So imagine walking together as a couple and you bump up against that thing that you're going to fight about. And then you walk the mountain a little bit higher and you bump up again at another level, but you deal with it a little bit differently when you bump up at it again. Mm -hmm. And then you walk again and you bump at another level. And And the view gets a little better each time. There's a little more clarity. A little more clarity. I I think about my husband and I have been married 26 years. What used to take us five days to talk about can take us five minutes now. That's great. But that's only because we've talked about it so many times. We've fought about it so many times over the years that we now understand what's at the base of that for us, why it is we bump against it, why is it we feel differently about it, can we respect each other around that. But not. I think couples need to know it's okay to have that happen. It's okay to take time to work on it. It's okay that it doesn't go away as long as it's not mission critical or a deal breaker in the relationship. And it's okay to accept that as a part of your total relationship without feeling like it's the demise of your relationship. It it took me years in in my marriage to, to realize that the manner in which we disagree is almost more important than what we're disagreeing about. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, because I think that comes down to conflict style. Yeah. So people have different conflict styles, you know, where some someone may be much more comfortable avoiding and not talking about it, where the other partner needs to process it. It's the talking out loud that actually helps them feel relieved mm-hmm. and work through it. Those are two very different ways of dealing with conflict. I say that always creates this kind of, remember the Tom and Jerry cartoon, that scenario of one person running away and the other person chasing after them, trying to resolve it. And what couples end up doing in that scenario when you have different conflict styles is you do end up fighting about how you fight Mm -hmm. rather than what you actually began the disagreement on. Um, Talk about the different types, if you can think of any, of ways that couples will respond once there's a, a, a disagreement between them before the before the verbal part has begun what some people are more comfortable with or what they need to go through the process of disagreeing with their their partner you know for instance yeah. somebody might need five minutes to collect their thoughts because they tend to panic mm-hmm. um, and uh, they and another person might feel like their skin's on fire if they don't say what they need to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about the different types yeah. of, of those that you see. Well, I see there's three core types of conflict styles. So you have the distancer. That's a person that would prefer, prefer time. They can't talk about it right away. 
And maybe they won't ever, maybe they'd actually be fine never talking about it, but they at least need some time to process. Then you have your discusser, and that's the person that processes out loud. And they do need to be talking through things in order to come to resolution. And then there's the demander, and that tends to be the person that's more, you know, passion. You've got big love, you've got big fights. And the bigger the fight, the more they feel heard, and the more they feel engaged with, and the more it feels real, and... But those are three very distinctly different ways of processing conflict. So I actually have a conflict style quiz on my website that people oh, really? can take. Yeah. Because I think it's so important to actually know what yeah. your different styles are. Because once you know that and you can look at each other and let's say, you know, I'm a distancer and you're a discusser and you, we can agree that when something comes up, conflict comes up in a relationship, which it does, conflict is just a difference of opinion, and mm. we all have it, that I can look at you and say, I'm going to need five minutes, and that's going to be okay, even though you want to talk about it, and you're going to say, yep, and after that five minutes, I'm going to need to talk. And can we agree to accommodate each other's styles, mm. rather than letting the style become the thing that undermines our whole day? Yeah. And what if I said, I'll give you four and a half, but anything more is a deal breaker. And I say it standing behind my lord. Yeah. And I say, ready, go. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hear the door close behind me. Does Jennifer have a good resource for figuring out what your values are, what your partner's values are, and if they match? People change all the time, so I think occasionally comparing values and long-term goals are important, but I don't have a framework for doing this. Mm. Great question. Yeah. Terrible person, but great question. I don't know who asked that. So I do have a resource that it's not mine. Yeah. David Bach, who's a financial writer. He's yeah. written many books on couples and finance. And so he's got a book out there, Smart Couples Finished Rich. Mm -hmm. And I love it, but mm -hmm. I love it primarily because of how he addresses couples' values. So he talks about spending and values, which, you know, anything, we're, any of our resources we're spending, whether it's our time or our money or our energy, goes towards the things we value. So when couples value different things, they want to spend their resources in different ways, and it causes conflict if you don't know what your values are. I want to save for retirement. I want to go on more vacations. Exactly. Yeah. And if we don't know that that's our motivating factors, then we're just pissed at each other. Right. Because right? we think the other person is illogical and irresponsible. Mm -hmm. We don't know it's coming from a place of... No, this is important to me. This mm -hmm. isn't, I'm not, I'm not just being flighty. Right. You know? It's very true. And so he has something called a value circle. And I believe he still gives this away, this mm -hmm. section of his book away for free on his website, David Box website. I'm just a little plug here for him. I don't even yeah. know him. I wish I knew him. And it's B-O-C-K? B-A-C-H. B-A-C-H. Yep. Okay. Um, and is it too late to get him to change it to B-O-C-K? I don't know. Okay. Would is you, that easier for would you? Would you put some feelers out there? I'll see. Okay. I'd, yeah. All right. I think that would be the f good way for me to meet him the first time. I think so. Just approach on the name spelling. Yeah. Listen, I was on the podcast <laughs> of this jackass, and he didn't like the way your name is spelled, and I think it's going to come back to bite me in the ass. So here's some forms. By the way, I'm Jen. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. So he's got something called a value circle. Um, the whole chapter is about identifying what your values are, what your partner's values are, where they match, and where they don't and starting to find then your shared values mm -hmm. and how you can match your resources. So I've used that for years as I've encouraged couples in their financial planning. That's a huge part, you know, finance cause divorce, blah, blah, blah. But um, it works brilliantly 
on a broader level to the question of really understanding what are the values that are motivating all of our behaviors in this relationship? Where do we match? Where do we not match? Is there a real divide that we need to pay attention to? And then I say, be sure you're having that conversation more than once every 20 years. You know, a lot of people have it when they first get together and they're trying to find right. out, are we compatible and is this going to work? Or we have it when we first live together because we're bumping up against everything that doesn't match. But staying in tune and asking, you know, do you still value this? Is this still important to you? Is this still motivating you? Or has it changed for you? It's a good thing to ask. How often do you see couples where one person keeps getting shut down because the other person... Um, invalidates what that person is feeling and the other person believes that person and how how do you do they go about working on that mm. well i think that's a huge psychoed piece you know we talk about mental health and it kind of goes to that base of understanding cognitive behavioral therapy and that there's no wrong feeling there's just healthier unhealthy ways of expressing it well absolutely and that idea that all of our you know if we don't realize that our feelings actually come from our own thoughts, we think they come from outside of us. Mm -hmm. So we think somebody else makes me feel a certain way. Right. Well, no, actually what you believe about what you just observed or the interaction you had generates how you feel and how you feel then is going to make you react. So really that whole feeling experience it has nothing to do with your partner. It has everything to do with, with what's going on in you. Mm -hmm. So if you're invalidating your partner, I need to help you understand that whatever it is that's causing you to believe you need to invalidate is within you. Mm -hmm. And we need to get to the bottom of that in order to, for both of you to understand what's really going on between the two of you. How to broach the subject in a new relationship would be helpful. Like, how can I tell them what to realistically expect when to have the conversation and how to tell whether the other person will be able to handle it? This person sounds a little anxious. Yeah, I needed a little more context around that question. It's, it sounds like they kind of want to know that everything is, is um, like there's a real anxiety about there being uh, any type of conflict or disagreement. So broaching a subject in maybe a I'm new relation. Yeah. Well, maybe, no, I think I, I'm, I'm seeing that that way. So mm. you're in a new relationship or maybe you've been in a relationship for a longer period of time, but you haven't been as vulnerable or as transparent because you really are afraid of showing that much of yourself because you don't know how your partner is going to react to you. Right? Mm -hmm. So there is fear around that transparency and vulnerability. That's a risk. That is a risk in life. That's part of you can't have love without that. But I also, I think love doesn't feel as good if you didn't have to lay yourself bare and risk being hurt. Mm -hmm. Well, to love is to be hurt. You know, I think it, you talk about two sides of the same coin. I think when we love deeply, we open ourselves up to be wounded. And often it's in the wounding by someone we love that we actually heal. It's this really strange experience that we have and does that we love deeply. And does that depend then how you come back together once that person, if that person has wounded you, whether you, you know, repair that or not and the manner in which you repair that? I, I think repair is incredibly important for the sustainability of the relationship. Right. But I think the wound always has a bigger lesson for us personally. You know, so to look at the wound and say, 
it's just about what you did to me right is you cut your actually you cut your opportunity short for your own growth because you're not examining what you're feeling yeah anything you might have done in aiding that situation to take place um not not that it justifies it no no i don't think so often we want to justify hurt because somehow that makes it better you know it's some right. strange psychological bandit band-aid like, like i want you to know i'm not a bad person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but at the same time if we can look at those i love i'd say it this way i love this con there's a concept out there of forgiveness where you're able to look at a way that you've been wounded or hurt and by holding it examining it understanding it and what it means to who you are and how you want to develop you're actually able to look at the hurt and eventually be able to say thank you for giving me this opportunity to learn what i've needed to learn about myself to grow in the way that i've needed to grow and if we look at being hurt from that lens it's an extraordinary opportunity but often we don't we look at hurt through the lens of blame yeah which is why did you do that to me? Why did you impose that on me? Which to me is indicative of emotional poverty and ignorance in in our country and I'm sure around the world where people don't understand I'm not trying to put you down. I'm trying to let you know I'm hurting and I don't want this to happen again. Mm-hmm. And all it would take is you know, learning a couple of sentences when you're young to put that person at ease to say, mm-hmm. I'm coming to you bleeding, not because, you know, I want you put in a figurative jail. Mm-hmm. I want you to know that I'm somebody that cares about you and this hurts me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to acknowledge that. I always say parents parents could wipe away years of wounds in their children's life if they were just able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, can you forgive me? You know, there are three very simple sentences, but they're very hard for most of us to get out. Yeah, they feel, um, I think if a lot of us felt shame for making quote-unquote mistakes as children, um, the beginning uh, of learning how to apologize without justification is agonizing, but, mm-hmm. it, but it gets easier. And the thing that I've also discovered in both um, sharing with somebody that they hurt me or apologize, me apologizing to that person mm-hmm. is reminding that person that I care mm-hmm. about them up front mm-hmm. and, and express it in terms of this is what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Not you, when you do this, you know, uh, here's what you're, do, you know, here's, you're this type of you're an asshole when you yeah well and really you're talking about approaching in compassion and the use of empathy which we know those two things make relationships so much better you know but that's on both sides like if we were to kind of put the whole picture together of you know being hurt and being able to forgive on your side and then somebody else coming back and being able to have a reparative conversation The base of all of that being successful is compassion and empathy. And humility. Well, yes. Yeah. yeah, Back to self-righteousness. Right. (laughs) Always back to (laughs) self-righteousness. 
What if one member is putting more effort in than the other? If each are individually in therapy, what if one is making more progress than the other, leading to new unique problems in the couple? Uh, I think there's a couple of questions there, and I think we kind of answered the first one. Um, but let's say that they're both in, in individual therapy. Um, and just all kinds of new problem permutations are, mm-hmm. are, are coming up. I imagine that's inevitable. It as is. As they're both changing. And I guess that question is going to get at one of my biases. Which is? Which is, I, I think there is, even if you're doing individual therapy, you need to be in couples therapy. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think individual therapy I just, has the potential no, to derail. I just agreed more. <laughs> I didn't think I could, but I just agreed more. <laughs> it's just too easy for when a therapist sits with someone individually to not keep the whole system in the room, you know, to not yes. have the partner sitting there at least figuratively in their mind and realizing that everything I do with this person is going to affect the other person in their life. And I think there is an ethical responsibility mm-hmm. as a therapist to be keeping that top of mind and not side with every thought that the individual has and really start building a case against their partner for them. Right, because you also don't know if they're distorting their idea of what that person is. But when they're both sitting in front of you and you're you're seeing it unfold Mm -hmm. and the tone and the body language and uh, and the language uh, that that I, I would imagine gives you a lot of objectivity it really does and i all systems in the world i could say macro to micro we create patterns habituated ways of being together because that balance of a pattern is comfortable so all couples create patterns and patterns can be helpful at times i think you know someone asked a question about tasks like how do you decide who does what tasks and oftentimes that's arguments you know between mm-hmm. couples of well, I take the trash out too often or you never make the bed or I'm always doing the laundry but those are just functional patterns in a relationship we get habitual about those but so it is our patterns and how we relate to one another mm-hmm. so if one person is you know doing something that is causing some sort of negative reaction from the other person it's a pattern that's causing that so if right. i'm not seeing the pattern i can't intervene and really help i can right. only offer suggestions really in a black box with an individual <laughs> right yeah and so often the argument isn't about what's being argued about it's about you hurt me 2 years ago when we were on vacation <laughs> and i had the flu and you went out skiing with everybody else instead of staying home and making me tea okay that's sounding really specific Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but yes those old hurts we hang on to that just kind of burrow in our mind and they why start- didn't she make me tea <laughs> Um, did I, did I cut you off? No, I think we completed that thought. (laughs) Um, but I hope you get to the bottom of that. uh, (laughs) Um, Why doesn't Netflix show the wizard of Oz? Is this one too controversial (laughs) to, uh, to tackle? Well, there's, you think there's black and white, there's color, Yeah, you know, it gets confused. Maybe it's just too much for most yeah. people to watch. 
You know, I I don't want to I don't want to even begin to know what's going on at uh, MGM. I don't know. Does MGM even <laughs> exist anymore? That was my friend Je- Jesse that put that on the uh, on my uh, news feed on uh, on Facebook. I do love the Wizard of Oz, though. I think it's one of the That's most right. brilliant analogies of identity development yeah. I've ever seen. It's amazing. It's brilliant. And and when you consider visually what that movie accomplished in 1939, oh. it's jaw dropping. It is. It was so innovative at the time, yeah. and still, I think to this day, I watch yeah. it. I'm blown away. I always love it when it goes from black and white to color. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, did we finish the, how to broach uh, the subject in a new relationship? Uh, I feel like we we kind of forgot that one. Let's say that you've got something really difficult to tell that person. It could be, um, I'm I'm bringing you. Uh, at some point, you're going to have to come home and you know meet my family, and there's this thing I'm really embarrassed about, mm-hmm. or it could be um, uh, there's something in my history, or maybe I've got a, a, a herpes or mm. something that you are worried this is this person's going to turn and run. Mm-hmm. When do I reveal it? How do I reveal it? Because uh, I don't want to waste their time, but there are things that you don't say on the first date yeah. as well. How, how do you deal with that? Well, I haven't been on a first date for a long time. <laughs> 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 yeah, but how do you, or maybe the question is, at what point do you start to let your guard down and become vulnerable? When is it safe to do that in a relationship? Reveal the the all of you. Yeah. the what would it be skeletons or flaws or the, the stuff yeah. that I guess you tried to um, uh, keep under wraps yeah. because you're afraid you're unlovable. If, if, if you knew, knew this that. about me, right. what's well, interesting because I just had someone on Twitter ask me a question similar to this a couple of weeks ago. She messaged me and said, you know, what's your best advice for when people first start dating? And I, you know, I thought about it, but initially, my reaction is, be yourself yes. right out of the gate. Yeah. Because then there's no question about when do I bring this up. And I, I mean, I understand we, you know, if you have herpes, well, hopefully it would be kind and ethical to bring that up before you have sex. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that would be a good thing for that person yeah. to know before you expose them to it. Um, and, you know, maybe there are those things you're a little more sensitive to. But the truth is, is the sooner you are a full version of yourself, the more authentic that relationship's going to be from the very beginning. Yeah. And there's not going to be those questions of, well, now, you know, I've pretended to be this for this long. Now, if I'm this, are you going to stay with me or not stay with right. me? Yeah. You know? And that then I suppose uh, the person that you're sharing this with has more information about you the things they like or dislike so they can decide oh well you know i could i this person is so fantastic i could put up with the insane relatives every thanksgiving cuz it's just two days or yeah. whatever or you know we'll wear condoms when you know she has an outbreak or whatever yep okay so it there there's no really hard hard and fast rule except just be yourself and sooner rather than later sooner rather than later mm-hmm. and I think the other thing I would add is come from a place of 
authenticity rather than fear mm-hmm. in terms of like, I'm afraid that if this happens, if I don't do this, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. It almost always seems to be something that is self-fulfilling because we wind up not being ourselves trying to prepare for this thing that we fear. I agree because underneath that is really desperation. Yes. Right. And I think one of the most critical things for a successful relationship is the intentionality of how it begins. And what, what does that mean? It means that if you are starting a relationship out of some sort of desperation, oh, if emptiness. you need to feel loved, if you are moving forward in a relationship because your parents want you to, if you are doing it because you feel like, well, it, you know, I'm X years old and by this time mm-hmm. I should be here and you know, I should be engaged or I should be living with someone or I should be married or whatever it is, those types of intentions don't have legs. They don't carry over time. So entering a relationship authentically yourself in the ways that you can. And and I think I probably should address there is safety in self-disclosure, you know, and there is appropriate pace to self-disclosure. If you meet somebody on a first date and they blah everything on you, it's probably a red flag, really, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think there is some pace to that. But at the same time, it's that comfortability of, you know what, I... I'm not so desperate for this relationship that if I do put all my cards on the table and you walk away, it means I'm at, you know, I'm completely at a loss. And I think that is that type of confidence of walking into a relationship with somebody knowing this is who I am and I'm going to share that person with you. And gosh, I hope you stay around because I really care about you. Uh, The other thing I see a lot is people um, get into a relationship and they are emotionally present. And the other person senses that. And they aren't ready for that. They want a certain distance. And so they bail. And the person that gets bailed on takes it personally. Mm. How often, I know it's probably stupid to ask what percentage of, but is it fairly common to see relationships where um, the person that got bailed on is actually the healthier of the two people because the other person has a fear of intimacy. Yeah, that is that is a good question because it could go either way. You know, you might be you might get bailed on, so to speak, because there is some unhealth that's really obvious. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, so, right. and other people are picking up on that, right. and you know, that's a real turnoff. But it could be the opposite. And I think it can be the opposite when you are going in in the way we've been talking about, where you are going in open and you are going in authentically and you are using healthy communication and you are... Moderate. Yeah. yeah. Moderate pacing and using your emotional awareness and intelligence. And if someone's not receptive to that, you know, it's kind of like a round peg in a square hole. Good. (laughs) <laughs> you yeah. just weeded out something that wasn't yeah, going to work for you. Yeah. I have a friend who, uh, uh, a guy dumped her. And, um, you know, I just keep saying, this was not about you. This guy was not available. Everything that you've told me about this guy, he, it just red flags of unable to be intimate in a committed, mm-hmm. in a committed relationship. Mm-hmm. But it's so hard when it, when, it's us that mm-hmm. that gets hurt because I think we go to the meanest voice in our head and we say, that's what that person mm-hmm. was thinking. Rejection sucks. It does. Yeah. 
uh, how do you keep your partner in the loop about your mental health yet not rely on them too much? I struggle with this a lot. That's a great question. It, it's a really good question. It actually makes me think of a couple I worked with um, where one of the partners dealt with significant anxiety. And it was one of the primary pieces that brought them in to therapy. And we had to work to balance the fact that the anxiety was real. It was a part of the relationship. You know, so I look at that and your mental health, whatever it is that you're struggling with, if it's um, depression, if it's anxiety, if it's bipolar, you know, ADD, ADHD, that that actually is a real part of your relationship. So it's actually a part of loving your partner if that's present. So being as educated as you can about it, understanding it, for some people, believing it's real. Yeah, you know that's, that's a good place to start. <laughs> and not taking it personally. And not making it about you and not thinking that this person is doing it to make your life more difficult. Yes. It, it's so, exactly. I think that's incredibly important. And with this couple, part of the treatment was looking at ways that he needed to be managing the anxiety and then defining ways that as a couple, they could manage it together and seeing the difference. You know, she couldn't make nutritional decisions for him and eat more protein. She couldn't make sure he was taking his medication. She couldn't work out for him. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she could take a walk with him at the end of the day and hear what was on his mind. And when he was really ruminating, she could tell him, that sounds like rumination. Mm -hmm. Let's think about it differently. She actually could help reframe for him. And that was a way... Instead of trying to change. Instead of trying to change. And I think teaching her some of those mental health skills to support her husband was critical because it allowed her to enter in and ex understand and have empathy and be part of a positive shift for him rather than sitting there and, um, you know, putting that all on his plate, basically saying, well, when you can manage that or feel better, you can interact with me. Right. And I don't think we... So that's what I'm saying is it's a part of the relationship. Right. So actually, it's not your responsibility to fix your partner or to fix their mental health or even manage their mental health, but it is part of your love for them or extending your love for them in helping be a part of the awareness and working with the mental illness. And I, I would also add, because I get a lot of emails from people about this, uh, to the partner, I want to say, it is okay and even healthy to leave someone who isn't owning their responsibility in managing their mental health um, that says, I'm too depressed to go get help, and then they that's their out. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that that person has to be perfect in the things that they do, the footwork they do in managing their health and seeking help. But um, it is uh, it is really unfair to not do everything you can to bring the healthiest you to a relationship and then blame your mental illness on it when you are not doing a lot of things that you mm -hmm. do, whether they work out or not. Mm -hmm. that you can at least check them off the list. And mm -hmm. I would imagine that that would also bring some comfort to the partner because then the partner goes, well, 
at least we're a team. Yes. We may be striking yes. out, but we're a team. Yep. Yeah. And we're working toward it together. So, yeah. Actually, mental health, when mental health is unaddressed and or untreated, um, it is a key factor. There's four reasons couples get stuck, and that's one of them. What are the other three? Yeah. Uh, Pop-tarts. Pop frosted or unfrosted. Or not having blueberry. Not having blueberry. Yeah. She saw the <laughs> boxes of uh, blueberry Pop-tarts that a uh, TR, who's a great, great uh, supporter of the show, <laughs> sent me a big box of them because I can't get them on the West Coast. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, the, uh, the other three? Yeah. The other three are um, an active affair mm-hmm. or ongoing affair that's not being addressed. Abuse. In a relationship that's not being addressed in addiction, that's yeah. not being dealt with. And when those things are present, couples get stuck. You know, yeah. you can't move forward if those aren't being addressed and dealt with. So they're kind of the triage. It's like if, you, if you're not going to deal with this first, it is uh, it, one of the things I see is people, they're like, you know, I'm drinking every night. Um, you know, I want to get better. I want my relationship to be better with this person or um and i always say man there's nothing is going to work right. if you are checking out with an with an addiction mm-hmm. it's it's a you're on a treadmill mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i like how i just repeated what you said i do too it's worth repeating <laughs> i was being sarcastic but um <laughs> How can I do a better job of being attentive and focused on my fiance's needs, emotional and otherwise, while also effectively managing my bipolar disorder? In other words, how do I avoid making everything about me and my disorder? Um, also, how can I accept her support and encouragement without feeling like I'm a fraud for being so needy and vulnerable? Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's some black and white thinking uh, going on there. <laughs> mm-hmm. It does. It, it kind of goes back to what we just talked about of, you know, how do you have good psychoeducation in the relationship how do you find that balance between you know this person managing the bipolar understanding what they need to do making sure they're doing what they need to do and i would imagine frequent communication with something this complicated yes. this large it's like you can't get together once a month and address it mm-hmm. yeah depending on what type of bipolar right. it is or how it's you know how it's currently being controlled um and Frankly, if it is something that's quite present and quite active, one of the things his fiance may need to understand is that's a part of loving this person, mm-hmm. is there are going to be times where it really is going to be all about him. And he is going to need to be focused on that and paying attention to that in order for both of them to have a good experience, I, you know? Same as if somebody broke a bone. Yep. You know? In fact, if somebody broke a bone and nobody could see that the bone was broken, Yes. You know, outside the house. That person needs extra mm-hmm. love because there's people out there saying bones don't actually break. You're just weak. <laughs> You're just lazy. Yeah. The last person they need is their partner telling them that. Which telling is, them that. Which too. is why I think it's so important that you do everything you can do mm-hmm. for your mental battle. So then you make it easier for your partner to not go, oh, my God, I'm stuck right. with this. Yeah. Because then really the burden does fall on your partner at that point to pick up the slack. If you're not doing at least what you can 
to be the best version of yourself yeah. while managing episodes with your mental health. But I also would say in that case, then when you're doing well and the bipolar is under control, those are your windows. Don't mm-hmm. dwell then on the bipolar. Actually, those are your windows to give and give in the ways that you can to your fiance and love and care for her. Be sure that you are asking questions about her experience, yeah. her emotional experience. What is it like for her? Not with your right. bipolar, but what's life like for her? What is she processing? What's important to her? Yeah. What are her thoughts? What can I do for you mm-hmm. to thank you for being there for me when I couldn't you know, get out of bed or, mm-hmm. or whatever? Whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, another thought I had. There's a great episode we did. It was a live recording um, with uh, uh, Mark and uh, Juliet uh, Lukacs. And uh, I think I'm pronouncing their, their name correctly. I'm sorry. I'm a little uh, out of it right now. And she had a, a form of uh, bipolar that had psychosis mm. where she had to be 51 And they wrote a book about how they manage as not only partners, but as um, uh, parents mm. to a child. Mm. And it's because it's so complicated, but they've managed to work through it. And he wrote um, the book about what it's like to be the caregiver of somebody and how do you recharge your battery as a caregiver because mm. i think one of the things the worst things that a relationship can endure is when the caregiver feels so worn down that they're not giving from a place of love they're giving from a place of guilt and mm-hmm. resentment mm-hmm. i think that's the difference between caring versus rescuing yeah right and when we get into that rescue mode we give to the point of our own suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, we give, as I kind of say, we, we dig into our own skin. We allow ourselves to bleed, and then we become a martyr. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that's a terrible relationship yes. to be in. You know, right. and so, and your other, your partner then has to become the victim, right. and that sets up that dynamic, which that's is awful. not healthy. That's awful. Um, I, I don't want to shit on organized religion, but here I go. There are so many remnants, whether they have been passed down for years or they've morphed into it, but this idea that you stand by your family no matter what, you stay in a relationship no matter what, um, it it has contributed to more sickness and codependency and resentment and probably addiction than could ever be measured, in my opinion. What what are what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, you're talking about a belief system, right? Yes. So there's certain that you're a bad person <clears throat> yeah. if you don't go home and get verbally abused by your uh, drunken father mm-hmm. every Thanksgiving. Because if you don't, you are a bad person. You're a bad child. You know, etc. You should be able to put up with being yes. treated poorly. Right. Because for the sake of the family or because that's what God wants or, you know, that there's, and I think, you know, that's as distorted a belief as a, Mm -hmm. you know, it's back to black and white thinking, right? Right. I think that's really what it comes down to is in, in all systems, we can find distortions and religion is full of its own distortions. And that tends to be one of them. And it's probably actually as much cultural as it is religious. Because I do believe, you know, I, I don't believe 
religion in and of itself is bad. I'm somebody mm-hmm. that believes in God, but I just see a lot, as I'm sure you yeah. do, of really corrosive ideas. Well, I think in in those belief systems, there's always the propensity to manipulate people because it's a power move. In religion? Yeah, I know. So surprising, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I think in that, and this goes back to what we've talked about a few times now, is that normalization of mental health, health and wholeness, healthy relationship. And so if that's not being implemented within a religious belief, what you're dealing with is just some standards or some values that you're supposed to adhere to. And there's not growth in there and there's not health in there. And there's no place for the anger to come out and it gets stifled. Yeah. So the religious, the religious organizations that have, at least that I've seen that have embraced mental health and they have embraced personal growth. I think you see their beliefs becoming much more open. And that's where you see a lot of healing ministries of people coming in and working with people that are being abused or creating or creating opportunity for addiction or treatments within their communities. And that's beautiful. You know, for the ones that aren't, that's unhealth. And that unhealth exists, unfortunately, in a number of places, though. Yeah, um, self-care is looked at as, you know, new agey or selfish. Mm-hmm. When it's like, man, if your battery's not charged, you got nothing to give. Right. You are just going to be a uh, shell of yourself putting on a mask mm-hmm. and coming home and wanting to sleep and never... <laughs> Never wake up. Um, but enough about me. Uh, how do you... No, that's how I used to be. How can I do a better job of being attentive and focused? Oh, we did that one. Uh, how do you get your partner to open up when, uh, based on their experience with you, they fear your reaction? Basically, my husband doesn't like talking about things for fear he'll make me angry or upset. That's a great question. It is a good question. And good that that knowledge is already there. You already know what he's afraid of. Brilliant. Right. Then you can work with it. <laughs> you know, I think I, one of the things that I tell couples is, you know, with someone you love, you always have a choice when you're upset of going at them hard or going at them soft. And soft is always a better choice. Yeah. You know, and I think entering into that type of a conversation from a place of softness rather than, well, I know you're going to think this about me or I know if I do this, you're going to respond that way okay, now we're set up to have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go in and say... Because that's a backhanded insult before uh, you've even begun. It's heavy passive, yes. right? And playing the martyr. Yep. Yeah. So, to, I mean, you know that your partner is going to feel apprehensive and for whatever reason that is, I'm sure you get to the bottom of it. It might be because mm-hmm. in his childhood, you know, people mm-hmm. always got mad at him and he's learned to not engage. It could be with you he's learned. That if he says certain things or does certain things, the response is not good. But if you know that that's already there in the relationship, then it really is about retraining your experience Mm -hmm. with each other. And the way you start retraining is by acknowledging, you know, if that's the elephant in the room, acknowledge the elephant in the room. Hey, babe, I need to talk to you about something. And I know you're probably going to want to slink away and you're not going to want to talk about it because you're afraid that I'm going to be angry. And so this is what I'm going to promise you is I'm not going to be angry. And if you feel like I am getting angry, will you tell me? so that I can switch what I'm doing because I really want to try to be successful with you here. Yeah. You know, and if I'm doing something, I want to be aware of it and I want to change it because I love you. Yeah. 
And we don't always know. We don't always know what our facial expression is ex- right. is giving off or what our tone is giving off. Yes. So you have to be open to that constructive feedback from your partner. And if they're saying, you know, that tone is really, see, that's it right there. You do that. Instead of saying, well, no, I don't. And getting defensive, your other option is to be soft and say, well, maybe I do. Yeah. Let me think about that. Let me try it different. Let's try it different. I mean, life is a big play. If you can't at least consider constructive criticism that is given to you diplomatically, I don't think you have a chance of being in a long-term healthy relationship. Yeah, and when it's not given diplomatically, <laughs> to be able to work with that too, work right? Work with that, yeah. And say, okay, this is not working for us. We can't, you know, we can't keep doing it this way. And maybe I'm so pissed I can't even have that healthy conversation right yeah. now. So I'm going to step away, but I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to come back around to it yeah. and tell you the way that we've been doing that is just not working. Right. we got to change this. Yeah. And sometimes it's just taking a time out and saying, yeah. let's t- take a break and... uh Come back in 10 minutes Yeah, when we've cooled off. Um, dealing with a new baby and for the woman, how to deal with the sometimes overwhelming resentment mm-hmm. she can feel to her partner. Those are hard years. I can't imagine. Those newborn years can be <sighs> really hard. Especially if there's PPD going on or any other mm-hmm. thing on top of that. Mm-hmm. Or a career was put on hold or given up. There's so many factors. And oftentimes with a newborn, in particular if the mother's nursing, she does have bear more of the weight of the care of a child. Um, and kids are boring. Yes. <laughs> I mean, let me be the first one to, to stand on top of the mountain and say, they're not that great. <laughs> okay. Yes, there's nice things about them. They're a joy. But a lot of them are a pain in the ass and a snooze. Do you have children? No, I don't. That's why I don't have children. But go ahead. Spoken as a true person. Yes. Uh, well, I will say this. Look what I made. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I used to do a bit, actually, in my stand-up act about how just shitty their art is. How not impressive. And was it good? Did it yeah. work? Oh, yeah. I used to close with it. <laughs> You drew a picture. Your head is as big as the house. How do you think you'll ever find a job? I can't believe I'm reciting some of my fucking act on there. But yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Well, I think oftentimes the idea of a child and the reality of a child are two very different things. And for a lot of, of men... What they encounter after that baby comes home is a loss of attention from their oh. wife. And it, because it's supposed to be great, and this is supposed to be an incredible time, and on many levels it is and can be, there's a loss in the relationship when mm-hmm. a baby comes home. Yeah, I mean, the baby is literally replacing who sucks on her breasts. And that is real. Because it does, it takes, it's a total buzzkill when it yeah. comes to sex <laughs> for at least a good six weeks before you have the thumbs up. And then most women still at that point are like, do the not l- touch me the yet. The last thing I want is another <laughs> set of lips yeah. on my boobs. Uh, 
So then what do you get? You get, think of how all of that then starts to circle, right? You have someone that is feeling like, oh my gosh, you used to want me and you used to really want to be close with me. And now you don't seem to need me and you seem overwhelmed and you don't seem receptive. So there can be a distance there. And if that's not normalized, I think it can become a chasm for some couples. And And what do you you mean when you say normalized? Normalized in the fact that, yes, that happens. That is real. You both recognizing it, talking about it and asking, what can I do to, to help this, to help you? Um, how can I express my feelings so that I'm seen and heard and we both know where each other is coming from? Yes. Correct. This is going to be a very distinct transition in our relationship. Things are going to change. Some of it we can anticipate and talk about ahead of time. Some of it we're not going to be able to recognize until we're in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And it might, and it's going to be difficult because all transition is difficult. We end one thing. There's a new beginning over here. But in between is this crazy neutral zone where things are not comfortable and we can't go back to the way things were and things aren't the way they're going to be yet. Mm. So we are going to be uncomfortable for a while and needs are not going to be met the way that they were. And we are not going to show up for each other always as the best version of ourselves. And if we can accept that that actually is a part of this change because we want to build this family together. So right. this is going to be the hard growth right. that we're going to go through. So this isn't a failure because right. we're not falling short of what every parent achieves. Yes. This is a thing. This is a thing. It's a real thing that every couple goes through when you add another person to the relationship. Yeah. And so I think knowing that and then in knowing that, how do you become, I would say, somewhat preventive you know one piece of prevention is knowledge education another piece of prevention is action Mm -hmm. so what are the things we are going to set up and that can be everything from how are we going to co-care for the baby in ways that are realistic how are we going to care for our relationship and make sure we are still paying attention to each other how can i care for you you know wife physically while you're going through this major transformation of giving birth and then having to heal, you know, there are ways that we can care for one another through that process if we are thinking about it in a preventive mindset. Hmm. That's great. I like that. I will still never have kids, but that's, that's nice. Oh, I can't wait until I see that first piece of art posted on your refrigerator. (laughs) You will not. You will not. Um, Yeah, I would imagine, too, that the woman so often is so overwhelmed with sleep deprivation, her body hurting, her seeing her body change, having anxiety about that, all of the responsibilities. And then this guy wants sex. She's probably not even, he's probably not even considering all of the things that is going that are going through her mind Mm -hmm. and she's probably so busy that it's it doesn't even rank on her just trying to keep her head above water Mm -hmm. and to get enough sleep well for someone who's never experienced that before you just explained it very well oh well thank you (laughs) maybe i'll change my mind um
How do you maintain a fair division of labor, both physically and emotional, in the home? And I love that labor is O-U-R. God bless you folks in the UK and uh, <laughs> Australia. Maybe it's Canada, too. I bet there's places in Canada where, there it's, where it's O-U-R, right? Well, or maybe it's all of Canada. Shall we Google it? Let's not get that crazy. <laughs> division of labor, physical and emotional. Um, what would emotional labor be? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I... Carry my family baggage. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> put up with my mother for yes. Christmas. An emotional bellhop. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting because when I was talking about patterns earlier and how patterns start in relationships, they're really, I, there are functional patterns and there are emotional patterns that get developed in a relationship. And those functional patterns tend to be the tasks. And, you know, how do you do those divisions of labors? Well... It can be a variety of ways. Sometimes it's who's most passionate about it. Sometimes it's what you like best and what I like best. Sometimes it's what I don't like and what you don't like the most, and we figure those things out. Sometimes it's just convenience. Sometimes it's schedule. You know, there's a lot of things that sort out division of tasks yeah. in a relationship. I think the emotional tasks really are about how do we take care of that dance between coming close and then going away from each other. How do we manage that? And you know, that's everything from understanding attachment. What, you know, what is my attachment style? Do I like being close? Do I not like being close? As it is to understanding if you're more extroverted or introverted, what kind of time do you need? Do you need conversation? Do you need quiet time at the end of the day? That's a way of emotionally management. What, what your love language is? What your is love it through compliments? Is? is it through spending quality time together? Mm -hmm. Is it through eye contact? Is it through gifts? Mm -hmm. uh, is it through, uh, you know, what, whatever? All of those, all of those pieces of how we dance with each other and mm -hmm. care for one another's emotions. Yeah. You know, and that can be that can be conflict styles too. You know, that's emotional management in the relationship, and I think. Again, we kind of get to that idea of what kind of education do we have around it? What kind of good understanding do you have about the relationship? I, it's one thing I do like about a pre-commitment or premarital counseling process for people is usually some of those baseline foundational pieces of a relationship, although they may not get perfectly sorted out, they get discussed. And that's a lot of what that question entails, mm -hmm. is how are we going to discuss those things of, you know, who's going to pay the bills? Mm -hmm. Who's going to, you know, take care of the things outside of the house? Who's taking care of things inside of the house? You know, mm -hmm. how are we going to manage that and do that? Who's making the social schedule? And then starting to understand one another emotionally and having those emotionally intelligent conversations so that you at least get a vibe for what's mm. going on in the relationship. I think it's better actually to just wait until the honeymoon and see if you hate each other. <laughs> Cause then you already got the gifts. <laughs> um, what happens when a partner snores and won't fix the problem? Wow. Sherry's raising her hands. Jen's Jen's. I don't know. Did I mention Jen's friends? Uh, friend Sherry is uh, sitting in on this. Um, yeah, you're the snorer? Oh, you're not? Why are you raising your hand? Oh, your husband snores? She's <laughs> nodding. Um, does he, is he working towards dealing with it? No, in zero ways. That's got to piss you off. It pisses me off really bad. <laughs> That's why I'm anxious to hear her answer. Yeah. Maybe I wrote this question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems very much like the mental health one. You, you know, it's like... 
he has a responsibility to see what he can do to deal with it. It's those denial pieces, those things that we don't want to deal with or acknowledge. Well, the hard thing about snoring is usually the person that's snoring doesn't know they're snoring. Yeah. <laughs> they often don't believe it when you wake them right. up. So I've I say, never heard myself yeah. snore. Yeah, asshole. It's like you've never seen the back of your head right. either. <laughs> well, you came with a mirror. But, Did yeah. I tell you there's not a lot of hair there? Yeah. No. <laughs> but I think video is actually, you know, I think oh, you take a video what of a it. Great idea. Have like, you done that? Proof of the crime. Oh yeah, with this neighbors is going on. Around. <laughs> <laughs> this is going on, and the thing about snoring is there are some actually really simple solutions to it out yeah. there. Sometimes it could just be sleep apnea, or maybe there's a mask they could wear. It can or... be. There's a little surgical in in office surgical procedure that takes care of that. There's a little thing you can stick under the pillow that helps vibrate and wake them up when they snore. And there's things you can do that are not costly. And at least, this is what I say about life in general, but let's use it under this circumstance. Mm-hmm. It's a research project. We should be trying out things and seeing Team if it up. works or if it doesn't. Team up. Yeah. Yeah. Or just um, let the back of your heel get really dry and scaly <laughs> and then just... Nail them. Just nail them. <laughs> Right in the fat part of his thigh. And then say, I didn't do that. Uh, I think we touched on this one. The balance between partner caregiver role. Um, We did talk about that. Um, This one's kind of off topic, but I think it's a great question. Uh, How do you deal with a pathological liar? Well, first, you need to acknowledge they're pathologically lying to you. I think that's where you feel like you're crazy. Yeah. It takes a while sometimes to sort out whether or not that's actually happening. And most people who lie a lot are really good at it, and you're fooled by it. Mm -hmm. I, when I was uh, working on this TV show, they would send a car to take you to the airport when we would go fly to do it. And uh, this guy... Uh, was the driver and fascinating guy. He's telling me these stories about when he used to be a policeman in Chicago and these shootouts, and it was amazing. And then the second time he drove, he was talking about how he had taught Bill Gates something about computers and how there's a new wave of hybrids coming out that get 100 miles per gallon. This was like in 07, he was saying this. And so, like, I called the dealer up and I was like, hey, you know, he told me that the, the next sob that's coming out is going to get 100 miles per gallon. And the guy, the dealer was like, I haven't heard any of this. And it suddenly occurred to me, oh, my God, this guy is a pathological liar. But he was so convincing. Well, typically, pathological liars believe themselves. Do they? Quite often. There is some level of they've lied so much. I don't remember that movie, though. Leonardo DiCaprio was in the movie um, Catch, Catch Me, Me If You, you can. can. That's a great one. Yeah. yeah. I think you want to understand a pathological liar, watch that movie. It yeah. is a great way of seeing how someone's distortion from childhood yeah. created a need to create false realities. Yeah. I suppose, you know, that's what serial killers do. A lot of them is they will justify it in in some way. You know, they'll look for any mistake that somebody else made and say, oh, that's the reason why I did that. Like, I, I heard this uh, uh, person shared with me the other day that uh, somebody 
had relapsed and killed somebody in a head-on collision, and this person was blaming their employer hmm. because they got laid off. If I hadn't gotten laid off, hmm. I would have wouldn't have been at that bar hmm. drinking. Yeah, and I'm like, wow. Well, yes. Oftentimes we see that with a real rampant addiction. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. Um. I like how I brought everything down to a funeral-like tone. Um, and let's remember they're starving babies. That's how I like to end every interview. Just think of the darkest, most unjust thing going on in the world. And, and highlight it. And highlight it in a soft voice. And then, and then just say, you're on your own. <laughs> Uh, so, so is this the end? So uh, what would you say about the pathological liar one? So that, About whether or not somebody is and yeah, finding you, out whether or not someone is a pathological liar? Yeah, well, you said there has to be an acknowledgement. Do you mean that the, the uh, non-lying person has to acknowledge out loud to the lying person, hey, you're lying? No, I'm, in that I'm saying it often takes somebody that's in relationship with a pathological liar quite some time to get to the place where they can actually firmly acknowledge within gotcha. themselves that that's what's going on. Gotcha. And up until the point where they can have some sort of conclusive understanding, it's quite crazy making. Mm. Um, and it's a very slippery, a very twisted ride. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there some uh, characteristics of uh, pathological liars that you could that would kind of tip you off? You know, I have to be honest, that is not an expertise of mine. Okay. I think, you know, lying in general, there's, you know, some physical tells that you can see in people. Mm -hmm. um, that idea sometimes of a, a story being very general or the story changing, mm -hmm. kind of paying attention to what somebody's telling you and maybe asking the same question at mm -hmm. different times mm -hmm. and seeing whether or not you're getting the same story or a different story. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're doing some checking. Do you ever find that the person that lies when they're telling a story and they're not lying, they put in an excessive amount of details? Well, I think when we're, when we're not lying, we do add in more detail very naturally but because, I'm talking like unnecessarily uh, large amounts of details. There's somebody I know that um, I know has a history of not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And often when they are sharing something, there's just so many unnecessary details included. And I wonder, what what is the psychological reason that all of those are being included? And I just get the vibe that this person feels like. I, they don't believe me, so. So I'm going to make at least my truths more believable? Yeah. Hmm, I don't know. That's just kind of my take on it. Yeah. I wish I could speak to that in greater detail for you, yeah. but it's not necessarily something I'm an expert in. And we'd know you'd be lying. Look how it all comes first, full circle. Was it, was it the way I looked at you or? It was your body language. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> The fact that you're uh, doing a yoga pose, which has been really awkward throughout the the whole interview, to do to do an hour and a half interview uh, 
doing downward facing dog is just weird. I have such a head rush yeah, now too. Yeah, it's terrible. But uh, then again, I've been doing plank for an hour and a half, <laughs> and nobody has complimented me on it. I got a strong core. I've been meaning to say it was really impressive. Oh, thank you. It's a little too late. <laughs> uh and what have we learned? That we should have told each other these things in the first five minutes. Um, that we were going to do yoga poses? Or? You have to understand that I'm making Sherry laugh, and that is what is egging me on. <laughs> because the rest of you probably have a higher standard of humor than she does. <laughs> uh, don't be insulted, Sherry, but you you seem like a bottom dweller in terms of humor. <laughs> And I'm and I'm your guy. I am your guy. Um, anything else that you'd like to uh, share before uh, before we wrap up? Let's uh, let's uh, tell them about your book one more time. It's called Relationship Reset, and uh, your website is uh, Jen Elmquist. JenElmquist.com. Two ends on Jen. Nope, just one. One. Couldn't afford two. Couldn't afford two. <laughs> Things are tough in Minnesota. <laughs> Well, the Scandinavians are very frugal. We like to keep it simple. Yeah. Um, nothing else to add? JenElmquist.com. Yeah. Pick up Relationship Reset. Yes. It falls in line with what you're talking about, Paul, of normalizing, destigmatizing. One of my key points in writing it was helping couples understand what's normal in a relationship so you can not uh, dwell on things that you think are problems when they're really not. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Sherry, fuck off. <laughs> Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.